The time is now 6 o'clock. Welcome to WORT's Local News for Wednesday, December 6th, 2023. I'm your host, Vicki Iden. And I'm your host, Robert McClure. In tonight's news, Governor Evers vetoed six bills today, including a high-profile bill that would have banned gender-affirming care while signing a whopping 45 others into law. Meanwhile, the governor continues to be protested by a local advocacy group that says he isn't doing enough to protect inmates. We'll unpack yesterday's late-breaking ruling on abortion from a Dane County judge. And in the second half, a woman uses her connections in Milwaukee and Los Angeles to form an artist network. The most comprehensive weather report hits the airwaves and the anniversary of Otis Redding's tragic death. Good evening, this is Rob McClure and Vicki Iden bringing you your local news live from the WORT studios on Bedford Street in downtown Madison. Here are the headlines for this evening. Ten Republicans who signed affidavits <laughs> affirming that Donald Trump won Wisconsin in 2020 have agreed to withdraw their statements according to a legal settlement, settlement announced today. The so-called fake electors now acknowledge that Biden won the presidency. They will not serve as presidential electors in 2024 or in any election where Trump is on the ballot. The fake electors named in the suit include Andrew Hitt, the former director of the state Republican Party, and Robert Spindle, who currently serves on the state elections board. Wisconsin is the first state in which fake electors have renounced their actions and agreed to cooperate with federal authorities. Fake electors in two other states have been indicted, and faked electors in three other states are under investigation. Documents in the settlement were released as part of the agreement. They reveal that most of the fake electors understood the possible illegality of their actions. In fact, one even admitted that their false statements could be seen as a, quote, possible stealing of the election, unquote. While the lawsuit against Wisconsin's fake electors has been settled, two attorneys who allegedly participated in the election scheme are facing legal <coughs> troubles. The two attorneys, Jim Trupis and Kenneth Chesbro, have deep ties to Wisconsin politics. A national political action group has announced that it will financially support Democratic candidates in Wisconsin's next year election cycle. The Democratic Legislative Campaign Committee's pledge will total $24,000. Split between Senate and Assembly Democrats, under Wisconsin law, political committees are limited to contributions of $12,000 per year. However, expenditures for competitive Assembly races can run up to $250,000, and Senate races can cost more than double that. If the current gerrymandering case before the Wisconsin Supreme Court results in a statewide redistricting, all legislative seats may be up for an election in 2024. The state legislature's budget writing committee is continuing to withhold $2 million from two indigenous tribes, reports the Wisconsin State Journal. The two tribes, the Bad River Band and the Lac de Flambeau Band, were denied funds doled out in the state's most recent biennial budget. The nine other federally recognized tribes in Wisconsin did receive their share. The committee was scheduled to discuss the tribe's funds at yesterday's committee meeting. However, Senator Howard Markline, a Republican from Spring Green and the committee's co-chair, said lawmakers would not be voting on the matter. 
He said they are waiting until tribal leaders agree to discuss an ongoing road easement dispute and a federal court ruling that removed tribal property from the tax rolls. Tribal leaders have written to the governor to say that they will sue if the funds are not released. The Wisconsin Department of Corrections has reinstated a co-payment for prisoners seeking treatment for COVID symptoms. Co-pays were suspended for two years during the height of the pandemic, but were then reinstated without notice one year ago, according to Wisconsin Public Radio. The copay of $7.50 may sound inexpensive. However, prison wages generally run between 15 and 25 cents an hour. At that rate, it would take an inmate three or four days to pay for this medical treatment. A national survey from the Prison Policy Initiative found that Wisconsin's Department of Corrections requires one of the highest co-pays in the nation. UW-Madison's building wish list for the next few years includes a $300 million dorm to house 2,000 students, reports the State Journal. The campus hasn't opened any new dorms in a decade, and dorms continue to be at or above capacity almost every year since. 2020 was the sole exception while when many students left campus during the pandemic. The project would need to get approval from state lawmakers, and that could be tough. The Republican-held legislature is already holding up another wanted construction project for the university, a new engineering building. The State Court of Appeals has upheld a ruling that's prevented the Kohler Company from building a golf course on the Kohler-Andre Lakeshore. An administrative law judge previously ruled that Kohler's wetland permit, which they need in order to construct anything on the land in question, was improperly issued. The court found that Kohler's permit application did not consider the overall impact of the proposed golf course on the area's wildlife. The Kohler Corporation said it would appeal the decision. Meanwhile, the Sierra Club has requested that the Natural Resources Board withdraw a Scott Walker-era land swap. The state of Wisconsin traded several acres of land with the Wisconsin-based business at that time, and the land swap made plans for the new course, golf course actionable. The Sierra Club argues that the land swap set a dangerous precedent. In an update to yesterday's report on the City Council's resolution calling for a ceasefire in Gaza, the resolution passed unanimously. The vote followed an hour and a half of public comment, mostly from those in support of a ceasefire. Some of the speakers were Palestinians who had relatives in Gaza, and Rabbi Lori Zimmerman said her faith taught her not to stand by while innocent civilians are killed by the military. In addition to the resolution calling for a ceasefire, the council also supported a statement condemning Islamophobia and anti-Semitism. And now on to the rest of the day's top stories. This morning, Governor Tony Evers vetoed a bill that would have banned gender-affirming medical intervention for Wisconsin minors. Our producer, Faye Parks, has the details. A crowd of spectators, including a number of Wisconsin youth, broke into thunderous applause after Governor Tony Evers vetoed the controversial bill. It's done. Despite hours of public testimony in opposition, the Republican-held state legislature sent the bill to the governor's desk on a fast track. It sought to ban all forms of gender-affirming medical intervention for Wisconsin youth. That includes puberty blockers, hormone treatment, and surgery. 
The ban would have applied to any medical providers in the state. If the bill had been signed into law, medical providers who continued to facilitate those treatments would risk losing their licenses. The bill was one of three in a package targeting transgender Wisconsinites. The other bills seek to designate all youth and collegiate sports teams based on the player's sex. Both bills have passed in the state assembly, but have yet to reach the Senate floor for a vote. In today's press release, Governor Evers promised to veto any bill that would make Wisconsin less safe, inclusive, or welcoming for LGBTQ adults and kids. He also took aim at Republican lawmakers, saying they were perpetuating hateful policies and rhetoric. Today, Republican lawmakers issued their own statements on the veto. Senator Dewey Strobel of Sockville says the governor's veto wasn't surprising, but out of touch with reality. He also reiterated the conservative talking point that gender-affirming medical care is harmful and irreversible. Puberty blockers have been in use since the 1980s, have been shown to be safe, and are still an active area of study for researchers. And the Wisconsin State Journal reports that minors rarely undergo gender-affirming surgery in the United States. 22 other states have passed laws that restrict gender-affirming medical care, with many of those states fielding lawsuits as a result. Earlier this fall, a Montana judge blocked their state's restriction four days before it was scheduled to take effect. Meanwhile, today, Governor Evers vetoed six other bills, ranging from election administration to judicial oversight over criminal charges to a ban on local guaranteed income programs. And the governor signed into law 51 other proposals including an initiative to expand safe haven laws to allow for baby boxes for newborn infants. Other bills approved today include sweeping alcohol regulation in the state, new safeguards to prevent sexual assault and harassment in the Wisconsin National Guard, more regulation of hearing aid specialists, and a requirement that high school students be taught a financial literacy curriculum in order to graduate, starting in 2028. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Faye Parks. Last month, Governor Evers announced an easing of the months-long lockdowns at some Wisconsin state prisons. But members of a statewide advocacy network, Wisdom Wisconsin, say that little has changed. On Saturday, many of them gathered outside the governor's mansion to demand an end to the mistreatment of inmates. WORT reporter Jess Miller has the story. On Saturday, members of Wisdom Wisconsin and affiliates staged a demonstration outside the governor's mansion, calling on the governor to end the ongoing lockdowns and other inhumane treatment of inmates at Wisconsin state prisons, and to fulfill his campaign promises to reduce the overall prison population. Mark Rice is the Transformational Justice Campaign Coordinator for Wisdom. We're out here calling on the governor to immediately end the lockdowns in Wisconsin prisons. It's a human rights crisis, and we're also calling on Governor Evers to follow through with his original campaign promise to cut the state's prison population in half. Last month, after a visit to Waupun Prison, Governor Evers announced that lockdowns that began there in March and at Green Bay Prison in June would be eased. The move came after inmates at Waupun filed a federal lawsuit in October against the prison and the Department of Corrections, saying that they were subject to cruel and unusual punishment. Saturday's demonstrators say that the governor's announcement has made little difference. As part of the easing, rules related to visitation, personal hygiene, frequency, and recreation would still be suspended. We spoke to one woman whose son is serving 28 years at Wupon. He became a grandfather while incarcerated. His grandson was born when he was locked up, and uh, he's five. In fact, uh, 
he hasn't been able to hold him or see him and they wouldn't um, put him on the visiting list so not only are they harming the inmates but it's their whole family is affected. James Wilbur, director of prison outreach at Wisdom who communicates regularly with prisoners addressed the group. We know from other reports that we're getting that the cell tier at Wapon Correctional Institution is now going on 13 days without a shower. We know that Green Bay has now removed library access to the men at Green Bay Correctional Institution. They're not able to go to the library to deal with their court deadlines. The conditions at Wapon, at Green Bay, at our other institutions go beyond torture. There is no word to describe it. It's an absolute crisis and the DOC and the governor continue to remain unresponsive to our demands for accountability. The demonstrators also stressed that the conditions at Green Bay and Waupon are not suitable for human habitation. Both prisons were built in the 1800s, Waupon in the 1850s and Green Bay in the 1890s. James Wilbur said of the conditions at Waupon, It is infested with rodents. There are feces on the wall. There are pigeons flying around. And yet we hear the DOC has implemented a facilities master plan. Five years ago, that process started and the governor consistently claims that he will remain behind the judgment of DOC leadership. In the last four months, at least three inmates at Wapan have died. One demonstrator's 25-year-old son, Timothy Neighbors Jr., was killed at Green Bay Prison while waiting in line to receive his morning medications. And they were approached by an individual um, who the warden explained to me and my son's mom that they knew they were aware that it was just a matter of time until the guy snapped. And so that morning, um, I don't know the exact words that were said, but the guy produced a homemade weapon, um, a piece of metal, and he stabbed my baby in his heart, and he killed my child. Saturday's demonstration was the latest of several in the previous weeks, including vigils at Green Bay and Wapan prisons. Mark Rice says their work is far from over. Governor Evers needs to take action on this, and also we need state legislators to take action. We need Department of Corrections to take action. But right now, we know that Governor Evers has the power to immediately end the crisis within Wisconsin prisons. And they're not a correction institution. They're not correcting anything. You know, they need to be corrected. For WORT News, I'm Jess Miller. Yesterday, Judge Diane Schlipper issued her final ruling on Wisconsin's infamous 1849 feticide law, deciding that it does not apply to consensual abortions. This afternoon, our producer, Faye Park, spoke to Michelle Velasquez, Planned Parenthood Wisconsin's chief strategy officer, and Kristen Lyerly, one of the medical providers who joined the lawsuit, to seek more clarity on what this decision means and what's ahead. Thank you for joining me, Michelle. No problem. Thanks so much for having me. So can you walk us through this final ruling from Judge Schlipper? What determination did she make? So the court's decision yesterday is really consistent with its prior decisions. Essentially, what the court declared is that Wisconsin Statute 940.04 does not apply to abortion. It is a statute that prohibits feticide, which is something different. It is not a statute that prohibits or criminalizes abortions. And so when you say feticide, could you give us a brief explainer on what that means? 
So feticide in Wisconsin law is the taking of an unborn child's life through like an assault or battery type situation. It, it really comes from this case called State v. Black, which the court in, in Dane County analyzed in its decisions in this case. And in that case, a man had battered his wife just a few days before she was due to give birth. And sadly, she lost that child before it was born. And so that is feticide. And that's not the same thing as abortion. So earlier this fall, after the judge's preliminary ruling over the summer, Planned Parenthood Mm -hmm. resumed abortion services in Milwaukee and Madison, but not in Sheboygan. Will you now be able to resume services there as well? Yeah, so we resumed services, as you mentioned, in Milwaukee and in in Madison. And that was really just about an allocation of staffing availability and making sure that we had the capacity to offer services to patients in both of those locations, which do offer both procedural and medication abortion services. Our Sheboygan Clinic is a medication abortion only site, in addition to the other family planning health services there. So absolutely, we are now looking forward to being able to resume services in Sheboygan and have been working on plans, schedules, etc. to be able to do that. I can't give you an, an exact timeline, but I would anticipate that it would be, you know, sometime relatively soon in the, in the coming weeks, but it's, it's a little hard to gauge right now. As, you know, this decision yesterday, I think, has offered some, hopefully, confirmation and reassurance to other providers, other healthcare systems around the state that they can offer their patients and treat their patients as needed without the fear of prosecution. Thank you again for agreeing to speak with me, Michelle. No problem. Thanks so much. Have a great day. You too. I now have Dr. Kristen Lyerly on the phone. Thank you for joining me, Kristen. Thanks so much for having me. So you are an OBGYN. You live in Green Bay, but you practice medicine in Minnesota. Can you walk me through what led to that decision, that career path? So up until the Dobbs ruling, I was practicing actually in Sheboygan. But when Dobbs happened and we stopped providing all abortion care here in Wisconsin, it really made it difficult to provide any women's health care in Wisconsin. And for me, as someone who is an outspoken advocate, I didn't feel that I could safely practice here in the state. So since that time, for over a year now, I've been working in rural parts of Minnesota, as well as on the Navajo Reservation in Arizona. It's been a lot of time away from home, a lot of time away from family. I have four sons, three of whom live here in my house with me. So it's been really hard on our family. But after yesterday's ruling, it all is worth it. You mentioned that ruling from Judge Schlipper. It sort of puts a bookend on a long legal battle. Can you walk me through why that is? So when we stopped doing abortion care in Wisconsin, we stopped doing that kind of care everywhere across the whole state. But most abortion care did happen in abortion clinics. And at that time, we had four clinics that were providing this kind of care, two in Milwaukee, one in Madison, and one in Sheboygan. When Dobbs happened, we all of the abortion clinics closed and all of the hospitals and other offices that were providing care stopped providing care altogether as well. It was very complicated. It was hard for physicians, obviously, because we were practicing under the threat of being thrown in jail for simply caring for our patients, for helping them with miscarriages and fertility issues and really heartbreaking, complicated pregnancies. 
And it also made it really difficult to receive care because the chilling effect of this law was very confusing. And it made people wonder what kind of care they could receive without getting in trouble. I've spoken with so many providers and so many patients who just felt like they just frankly couldn't receive care and ended up having to travel out of state just to get fundamental, I mean, basic health care. I believe it's the district attorney for Sheboygan County has been particularly outspoken trying to make sure that abortion services do not resume. Can you tell me more about that? Yeah, that's right. Mr. Ermanski, DA Ermanski, is really the DA between Milwaukee, Dane, and Sheboygan counties, the three counties where the abortion clinics were located. He's the one who has said that, yes, he will prosecute physicians who provide this kind of care. In the other 69 counties throughout the state, most of the DAs haven't said anything at all. They're just kind of sitting back and watching. So the case was really based on those three DAs and then doctors who provided care in those three counties. Sheboygan is particularly challenging because, as I said, it was DA Ermanski who specifically said he would prosecute, whereas the district attorneys in Milwaukee and Dane County said that they wouldn't. That's why we resumed abortion care earlier in those two counties and have not yet resumed care in Sheboygan County. With this final ruling, do you still anticipate more legal battles in the future? I'm a doctor, not a lawyer, but I have heard whisperings that there may be an appeal. And I think that that is generally what people are thinking, that this could actually make its way up to the Supreme Court. You know, for me as a physician, my primary goal is to make sure that I can take care of my patients, that I can hear them and provide them them with the care that they need within the context of their own lives. So for me, I'm in it for the long haul. And so I also saw in the court filing that Judge Slipper actually denied your request for an injunction. What does that mean and how could that affect you moving forward? That's a great question. We wanted that injunction to make sure that when the ruling happened, we would still be able to provide care if there was an appeal filed. We don't need the injunction because all of the parties agreed to abide by Judge Schlipper's decision. So we were being extra careful to make sure that we could provide that care. But in the long run, as it turns out, we don't need it. So what are your next steps as an OBGYN? How might this change how and where you practice medicine? It has changed everything for my practice. I've been doing advocacy work in obstetrics and gynecology for years. There are many, many battles to fight because healthcare, whether you're a patient, a doctor, a nurse, healthcare is troubled in this country. But I've never seen anything like what happened with Dobbs here in Wisconsin. I'll continue to fight. There are many more battles to fight. I hope at some point in the near future to be able to transition my practice back to Wisconsin to be able to provide the kind of care where my patient can come to me with her problem and I can offer her solutions and we can walk through her journey together from the beginning all the way through. So I can't wait to get back home and be practicing, but it's going to be a little while before, you know, you can't just flip a switch and turn everything around. So it'll probably be a few months at least before I can make that happen. Is there anything else you'd like to share with our listeners? 
the most important thing that I want everyone to understand is abortion is legal in Wisconsin. It is okay to seek an abortion. It is okay to ask questions from your provider. It is okay to order abortion pills online like many people had and not worry about repercussions if you do have questions or problems related to that procedure. Abortion is legal now in Wisconsin. Thank you again for agreeing to speak with me, Kristen. Oh, thanks again, Faye. That was Dr. Kristen Lyerly, one of the doctors that joined the lawsuit challenging Wisconsin's abortion ban. And before that, we heard from Michelle Velasquez, Chief Strategy Officer with Planned Parenthood Wisconsin. They shared their perspectives on Judge Diane Schlipper's final ruling, which determined that Wisconsin's infamous 1849 law does not apply to consensual abortions. The time is now 6.32, and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. I'm your host, Robert McClure, here with my co-host, Vicki Iden. Thanks for staying with us. For this week's Framing Culture, feature contributor Jose Carlos Texiera uh, traveled to Milwaukee to meet Sarah Dalidan. Sarah works with artists and other entrepreneurs to develop a collaborative network between Los Angeles and Milwaukee. Framing Culture. Welcome to Framing Culture. I am in front of Washington Park in Milwaukee, and I have an interesting guest with me today. My name is Sarah DeLayden. I'm with MKE LAX, and I'm a co-owner of Washington Park Media Center. So I'm just inside the newly founded Washington Park Media Center with uh, lovely Sarah, and I'm looking out of the window. So tell us about it, and also tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do. Yes, so it's a real privilege to be here at Washington Park. It's a beautiful historic park designed by Frederick Law Olmsted and cared for for many years by the neighbors here. So being near the park was a big reason we chose to start the Washington Park Media Center here. We offer media strategy, media production, media training, and we are available to our neighbors to support neighbors that want to grow their media skills, whether they're going to be professionals or they just want to enhance their ability to make media for their everyday lives. But we also are professional artists and other kinds of designers and media makers who are here to produce content and to think through creative forms of distribution of that content for national audiences and global audiences, but also for Milwaukee. It sounds like a great project. And for those who are out there listening to us, I met Sarah Delayden years back in Los Angeles. And I was quite intrigued by Sarah's personality as this cultural producer, mediator, facilitator, who also, and I'd love you to tell us more in depth about it, uh, created a very special project called MKELAX. So I grew up in the Milwaukee region in a town called Waukesha that I now think of as a suburb of the city of Milwaukee. And I learned to become an artist in the city of Milwaukee as a young person and spent some years here, but moved to Los Angeles about 20 years ago 
And I started an initiative, MKE LAX, as an exchange program for artists and other kinds of culture workers between Los Angeles and Milwaukee. And so over the years, I've produced a lot of different kinds of residencies and events and other place-based projects. There's always been media production in all of it, because for me, part of MKE LAX is talking about these two different U.S. regions and how they are connected and sometimes don't feel connected, how they influence each other knowingly and unknowingly, and also some of the power dynamics that exist in our country, partly because of Los Angeles as a global port. You know, that media production is one of the main markets of Los Angeles. And Milwaukee is, for me, an example of middle America, which sometimes can feel very big and vague when you're on a coastal city like Los Angeles. Yes, and what is so special about it is that you don't find often people like yourself, and correct me if I'm wrong, who are invested in bringing, you know, major urban global players like Los Angeles or New York or Chicago into a direct conversation with that other, should I say, more forgotten America. And so I think a project like yours is super important connecting those two. And I would love if you could shed some light on the work that you also do as a person who is embedded into the political, municipal, county level as as a cultural worker in LA, but also now in Milwaukee? Great question. If I speak first to even the instincts with Milwaukee and Los Angeles connecting the two, part of it is it is my life. You know, I have traveled back and forth between these two places, and sometimes I feel like the journey, so the time, for example, I spend in the air or with trains and buses and walking to get between the places has been part of the practice for me to understand, again, connectivity that's possible between these U.S. regions. The U.S. is an extremely large nation with a lot of land to it, and for me, there's so much beautiful specificity to the land relationships in which I often think of as regional poetics. You know, I've learned to come to appreciate my homeland here in Milwaukee in the way that, you know, social life happens and all the ways that artists can respond to that and make work. And the same thing happens in Los Angeles. Los Angeles, of course, has a, besides just being, of you know, a lot of density and a lot of migration that's happening there all the time, it still has its own regional poetics, the way that it's of, of that place, of that land and of that social experience. And so when Los Angeles has all this power to distribute, again, throughout the U.S., but also globally, what the definitions of the social are there. There's a sense of opportunity, but also imbalance that I'm curious about by trying to amplify some of the media production in Milwaukee. And also, again, what I just think of as cultural exchange. And for me, getting artists and other culture workers to spend time together and to have these complex conversations, it's one way to stimulate more art and cultural production to happen also. And in terms of my work, what I think of as work with civic life, but comes in the form of partnering with governments and often for multiple year projects. So here in Milwaukee, I've worked with the city of Milwaukee government, particularly over the last 10 years on a number of embedded place-based projects. MKLX, it's been a little over a decade it started actually help supporting Milwaukee artists and other culture workers to network in Los Angeles. And then I found that it started to build interest in my Los Angeles network to want to come to Milwaukee. Sometimes I'm working with institutions, including the government here, to fund and, and create those experiences. And may I ask how open... Uh, because we are talking about bureaucratic bodies, regardless how eager they they might be to to do things, but there is always a structure that sometimes is hard to work with. And so, how open Milwaukee and then Los Angeles as as these entities have been towards you and and your proposals? 
Oh, it's a real, you know, it's an art to making friends. <laughs> what I mean by that is I do think I'm often introducing concepts and ways of working, but also people and places to each other that wouldn't necessarily have chosen to connect. So, for example, I have Molly Cleeter, this amazing performance artist from Los Angeles, is here coming to do a recording right now. Who I just met, and uh, she sounds a lovely, lovely person. Somali's been here a few times now and you know why come to Milwaukee to do recording right there's all kinds of opportunities for that in Los Angeles but part of it is our relationship with each other and way Molly has found relationship here with other artists in Milwaukee. Molly you come from LA and you have been here doing some work with Sarah and Wes. I come from LA and I'm here working on a series of videos that hopefully will be distributed through the internet on websites about child advocacy. It's remarkable to be coming from Los Angeles to Milwaukee to make media because here the vibe is about what we're making. In Los Angeles, the vibe is very, it's a very difficult terrain to walk because of the Hollywood, the radio, the television, the media pressures and influences, even in the art world. There's a lot of media makers in Milwaukee. They're very talented, partly trained through the universities here or through apprenticeship and other work experience. And I've often found the Milwaukee artists are very eager to connect with someone from Los Angeles or somewhere else. So the point is on the Los Angeles end, I think it's also sometimes a drive to want to understand Manila America. If you've really been, again, between Los Angeles and sometimes there's a bias to always connect New York and Los Angeles, you know, there hasn't been a pathway to meet and to spend time with another place in the U.S. And so the invitation from me and from my team often is well received. Dovetailing what you just said, Sarah, like there is, and as a foreigner myself, I feel that part of your experience in the world is through opening your heart and your mind, but also challenging biases and prejudices. And I feel that in a country like the U.S. that is so vast, you always have this conversation or this tension between the in and the out, the center and the periphery. And this happens in every region. So I believe we are talking about Middle America and East-West Coast as, as that complex conversation. Absolutely. So the question is, where the center is, is a perception. And we can change our perception. And we can understand multiple centers if we want and different scales of the centered. So I always think about it here, how Milwaukee sometimes is viewed as a center for Wisconsin, partly because it's a major city. But you still are talking about a city less than a million people. Right. And here in Los Angeles, just millions and millions of people in the city and in the region. So it's just always relative, right? What we consider to be the center, to your point, maybe another way to define center isn't just scale or economy. It's also where do we just feel, you know, a sense of warmth and ability to incubate and grow. So I, for me, yeah, I feel like I'm trying to experiment with how to create a sense of center, again, for artists, designers, other culture workers of this region, because I really feel that economy grows when we connect more. And it's so important to have something like Washington Park Media Center as an invitational space and place where people can actually try it out, experiment, 
WORT is, of course, our local Madison radio. But I was so happy to come here precisely in order to expand this network and to give Madisonians and other people in the region to be aware of actually what is happening in this space in Milwaukee. I really appreciate that you took the time to come here. I always want there to be more connections between Madison and Milwaukee. Looking forward to see what the media center here is and will become. And you are such a great connector in all of this. Yes, again, wonderful to spend time with you. Thanks for making the journey between Madison and Milwaukee. You are welcome. Bye-bye. And it's time now for the most comprehensive weather report on the airwaves with WORT weather guru, Rob McClure. Well, the appearance of the sun was a welcome relief today, filtered though it was through uh, passing cirrus clouds. Those ice crystal clouds up at about 20,000 feet or so were made of Pacific Ocean moisture circulating rightward with the jet stream up and over the top of the building upper ridge that's out to our west, which stretches now from the west coast up into the central prairie provinces of Canada and then eastward to the western Great Lakes and Mississippi Valley. As that ridge presses eastward overhead here tonight and tomorrow, the warm air underneath it should allow our temperatures tomorrow to jump a good a dozen or 15 degrees. You can see that approaching ridge on the both the water vapor and the visible and infrared satellite images of the continent that we have linked up on the WORT weather webpage this evening. If you want to have a look at them, you can choose which of the two ways you'd like to view it. All of those satellite sequences go back about three days, so you can see how the uh, upper pattern around us uh, is evolving and changing across that time. But on the visible and infrared loop in particular, you can see those low clouds, which are not visible on the water vapor, that kept us so dark the past few days. Uh, that was as we sat in the pit of a wide upper air trough that you can see over the Great Lakes with a couple of weak systems passing by us to our south, including the one Tuesday morning, that Alberta clipper, which put down the half inch of snow or so that we had. The upper ridge will take another couple of days to traverse the area from west to east, but if you look out far to the west behind it, you can already see coming ashore over California, the upper trough that will recool us over this coming weekend, in which we were hoping might deliver us a decent snow in the process, as had looked to be possible back on Monday morning when I gave the forecast. That possibility has come to look increasingly less likely now due to uh, what are actually some fairly uh, minor changes in the timing and trajectory of the upper waves that are going to be bringing the storm together over the center of the country and deepening it. A lead wave ejecting out of that trough shortly while it's still out over the west coast and then traveling across southern Canada tomorrow and Friday will grab onto a load of cold air in Canada behind it, repelling it southward and helping then to deepen the trough southward and eastward as it pushes, as the trough pushes inland across the mountains and plains. But the impulse of energy that's behind it, uh, which will be ejecting out of the bottom of the trough on Friday over the southern plains, that will not be quite timed or positioned properly to spin up into a significant storm and slow down its forward speed before it recurves northward up through here, as appeared possible a couple of days ago. Instead, this uh, developing surface circulation will lift quickly northeastward along the lead side of the approaching upper trough passing overhead uh, here Saturday morning, probably, while we're still fairly warm out ahead of the cold front. 
So that's going to make for a mostly wet storm uh, in the overnight period going into Saturday. Uh, possibly even one in which we might get a little bit of convection, uh, given at least the way the latest model runs were looking. Uh, so anyway, not much in the way of snow expected this time around, except for maybe some incidental flurries after we begin to cool later on Saturday and on Sunday. But uh, back to tonight, uh, passing high clouds will be gradually uh, thin as the upper ridge starts to press overhead later on. Southwesterly winds at 10 to 17 miles per hour will hold temperatures uh, from falling much. Uh, we'll keep the temperatures in the mid-30s for lows. Meanwhile, about 3,000 feet overhead of us, much stronger southwesterly winds are going to be pumping in what will be much warmer air off the southern plains. That will boost temperatures up above us into the uh, low 50s from the mid-30s where they are now. And you won't notice that early tomorrow, but it will become noticeable later in the day when surface temperatures uh, aim towards 50 degrees, probably, once we get some vertical mixing going in the afternoon. And what will be lighter southerly winds tomorrow at 5 to 10 miles per hour. I'm not quite sure we'll crack 50, but we should be close. Skies will be, uh, we'll see occasional passing clouds tomorrow, but otherwise be clear. Uh, clouds may increase a bit more tomorrow night, holding temperatures in the low 40s with the aid of continued southerly winds overnight. And Friday, we'll see continued passing high clouds, but stronger south-to-southwest winds up at 10 to 15 miles per hour will, I think, bring temperatures into the low 50s. Clouds will thicken as we get later in the day, and I, we're likely to see showers break out as we go uh, overnight uh, into Saturday. Uh, these will be fast-moving showers, uh, uh, but uh, so far there's no indication that we'll have enough vertical build for thunderstorms, but it does seem possible. Uh, rain should pass east on Saturday morning with uh, overnight temperatures holding around 40, but then continuing uh, pretty much around 40 without rising much on Saturday as winds veer west and northwest behind a cold front and increase up to 12 to 20 miles per hour, uh, likely with, uh, with uh, stronger gusts during the day Saturday. Temperatures will drop back to the upper 20s during the overnight with continued uh, brisk northwesterly winds and we'll be back in the low 30s. Uh, much more appropriate temperature, I should say, for the day Sunday. It's currently 37 degrees down here at the station on Bedford Street. The dew point temperature is 30. Uh, winds out of the southwest 12 miles per hour, still gusting up towards 20 or better. Uh, passing mid-level uh, high clouds over the station up at about 9,000 feet. Uh, Mid-level high clouds doesn't make any sense. Mid-level clouds, let's call them up at 9,000 feet. And the barometer's falling fairly rapidly now at 30.00 inches of mercury. We go now to December 10th, 1967, and the death of a king. Here's Stu Levitan with tonight's Madison in the 60s. They melt into a dream. Madison in the 60s, December 10th, 1967, the death of Otis Redding. Otis Redding was one of the breakout stars at the Monterey Pop Festival in June, blowing minds with powerful performances of songs like Shout, Try a Little Tenderness, and the song he wrote, which Aretha Franklin made a huge hit, Respect. Afterwards, he had to take some time off to recover from throat surgery. But he's back on the road in fall, and now he's coming to Madison for his first Wisconsin appearance. 
Two shows on Sunday, December 10th at The Factory, Ken Adamani's new night spot at 315 West Gorham Street. The dynamic King of the Soul Singers has appearances coming up in the Ed Sullivan and Johnny Carson shows. There's a duet album with Aretha Franklin in the works, and he's about to take a Christmas trip to Vietnam to entertain the troops. But tonight, two shows in the 1,500-person capacity factory, presented by Kaleidoscope Incorporated, with a light show by the Electrocution Company. The contract is for $3,000 and another $1,750 if both shows sell out. The early show doesn't, but it looks like the 9 o'clock show will. Tickets 3 bucks at Discount Records, three fifty at the door. The opening act is a band Adamani manages from Rockford called The Grim Reapers, featuring guitarist Rick Nielsen and Tom Peterson on bass. Redding plays Cleveland Saturday night and is flying up Sunday in the well-used green and white Beechcraft 18 airplane he had just bought for $78,000. Normal capacity is 5 to 6. Redding's party is 8 with 7 fellow Georgians, his five-man backing band, the Barquets, pilot Richard Fraser, and a teenage assistant. The godfather of soul himself, James Brown, had personally told him the twin 450 engines weren't big enough but it's Redding's pride and joy. It's raining so heavily in Cleveland on December 10th that some flights from Hopkins Field are grounded, but Otis doesn't want to disappoint his fans, so it's wheels up. The weather's a bit better in south-central Wisconsin, but still a damp drizzle and heavy fog, ceiling only about 100 feet, visibility just a little over a mile. Fraser knows he'll need to make an instrument landing, so the Georgian sets the plane on autopilot and doesn't realize that ice is building up on the frame. Redding is in the co-pilot seat, probably asleep. Bernard Reese, president of the Gardner Baking Company, is outside at his lakeside house on Monona's Toniwatha Trail. He hears the plane and thinks the motors sound like they're laboring. At 3.25 p.m., the plane is four miles south of Madison Municipal Airport, about 1,200 feet above the lake. Fraser gets clearance and lowers the landing gear. Suddenly, with no call of distress, the plane sputters and stalls and falls into the wintry water about a half mile out from the 4600 block of Tony Watha Trail. Rees watches in horror and races inside to call police. Then he and neighbor Chris Dickert go out in his boat to help. It's Dickert who sees something gray and shiny bobbing in the water. Otis's attaché case. Madison and Monona police divers get there in a hurry, but are only able to make one rescue. Trumpeter Ben Cauley of the backing band Barquets, this week celebrating his 20th birthday, pulled from the 34-degree water just in time. The others are all dead. It's difficult and dangerous work recovering the bodies. Otis isn't found until Monday. One of the most dynamic performers of his day died still strapped into his seat. Some magazines actually published a macabre photo attesting to that tragic irony. About 4.30, police call Adam at the factory and ask him to send someone down to identify the bodies. Police later report that the attaché case contained about $4,000, part of the payments for the show in Cleveland and a fraternity dance at Vanderbilt. But neither case nor cash are returned to Redding's widow Zelma or his father when they come to Madison to bring Otis home. Record company executive Phil Walden and road manager Twiggs Lydon are able, however, 
to get Coroner Clyde Chamberlain to overlook the small bag of marijuana found in Redding's pocket. It's getting close to the 6.30 showtime, and the chilled crowd is waiting impatiently outside. It falls to Gary Carp, keyboard player with the White Trash Blues Band, to go to the club's second-floor window to announce the show's been canceled. At first, many are suspicious and start to boo. In the era of music should be free, they quickly conclude Otis had never really been booked. Carp repeats the awful news, and the terrible reality sets in. A stunned silence falls over the crowd. It's not quite two months since the campus riot between police and protesters over recruiting by the Dow Chemical Company, and cops worry what might happen. They ask Adamani to open the club so people can focus on music rather than grief and anger. Adamani gets a Milwaukee R&B band, Lee Brown and the Cheaters, and lets the crowd in for free. While Otis was in the Bay Area for Monterey, he stayed on a houseboat in Sausalito and started a song about watching the ships come and go. He brought it back to Memphis, where guitarist and producer Steve Cropper finished the lyrics. It's a softer, contemplative song, and Stax Records Vice President Al Bell worries about its marketability. But Otis trusts his own artistic instinct. This is my first million seller right here he says as he finishes recording the vocal on December 7th. Zelma doesn't really like it, and Stax Records Company president Jim Stewart won't release it until Steve Cropper mixes in some waves and seagulls. Otis underestimated its potential. Released January 8, 1968, sitting on the dock of the bay, tops both the R&B and pop charts, wins two Grammy Awards, and sells about four million copies. Grim Reaper musicians Nielsen and Peterson later formed the band Cheap Trick, which was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 2016, 27 years after Otis Redding. The National Transportation Safety Board lists the cause of the crash as miscellaneous, undetermined. And that's this week's Madison in the 60s. For your award-winning, listener-supported, soul-music-loving WORT news team. I'm Stu Levitan. And that does it for our show this evening. Thanks for listening to WORT's Live Local News at 6. Our headline writer this evening was David Ahrens. Our reporter was Jess Miller. Special thanks to our feature contributors, Jose Carlos Texiera and Stu Lavatan. Katie Gergella is our engineer. Faye Parks produced the newscast. And Shali Pittman is the news director here at WORT. I'm your host, Robert McClure. And I'm your host, Vicki Iden. Stay up to date with the WORT Local News Podcast. Subscribe on iTunes Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. Up next is Query, followed by This Way Out. Good night. <laughs>